Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have several other podcasts out there. I have Pucks and Cups, From John to Justin, Coast to Coast, and Canada's Great War, available on all podcast platforms. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So every dollar you give helps keep it all going. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history. Just go to CanadaEHX.com, and you can find weekly videos on my YouTube channel all about Canada's history as well. Just go to YouTube.com slash C slash CanadianHistoryX. In Alberta, there are few places with as much history as the Municipal District of Willow Creek. Located in southwestern Alberta, with an area that covers 4,558 square kilometers, there's a lot of history in there. Before Europeans arrived in the area, and even before the Indigenous began to establish unique cultures there, something would happen that can still be seen to this day in the district. About 12,000 to 17,000 years ago, a huge landslide occurred in the Rocky Mountains at what we call Mount Edith Cavill today, which deposited millions of tons of quartz rock onto the top of a glacier. That glacier would slowly move and become part of a massive ice sheet that covered Alberta. These boulders would be transported hundreds of kilometers away from the Jasper area, all the way down to the MD of Willow Creek. Then, the glaciers and the ice sheets started to melt as the last ice age came to an end, and as they did, the various boulders would be dropped along the way, creating the Foothills Erratic Train. This train stretches 930 kilometers long and only 22 kilometers wide, and it goes right through the MD of Willow Creek. The boulders range in size from one foot to dozens of feet in length. The most famous cluster of these rocks in the municipal district is the Hetherington Erratics Field, located 17 kilometers southwest of Fort McLeod. On this 58-hectare piece of land, there is a large collection of glacial erratics clustered in the area. This field of erratics was created as the Foothills Erratic Train narrowed from several kilometers to only one kilometer in width, creating a glacial bottleneck. The area contains about 12 large erratics with polished corners due to bison and later cattle, using the stones to rub and clear away old hair and remove pests. Centuries after the rocks fell, the indigenous would begin to arrive in the area, and the erratics served as an important marker for the indigenous and even became part of their legends. The indigenous would develop into several cultures in the area, with the most famous being the Blackfoot, who occupied the land for centuries and helped to create one of the most famous sites in the area, Head Smashed In Buffalo Jump. Located just to the west of Fort McLeod, the bison jump has been used for at least 6,000 years by the indigenous people of the area to kill bison by driving them off a 36-foot cliff. With no horses, the indigenous would drive the bison from a grazing area three kilometers away using drive lines that were lined by cairns and indigenous dressed as coyotes and wolves, who would guide the bison into the drive lanes. The bison would then go off the cliff where the injured bison could be killed with ease. The jump was used for so long that the bone deposits at the bottom are 39 feet deep. The carcasses of the bison would then be taken to a harvesting camp. 
This jump allowed the local indigenous to get everything they needed, including food and supplies, which then gave them more leisure time through the year and led to a more complex culture developing with artistic and spiritual pursuits. The Blackfoot called the site Estepa Skikini Kots, and the name comes from the legend of a young Blackfoot man who wanted to watch the bison plunge off the cliff from below, but he was buried underneath the animals, and when he was found later, he was dead, and his head was smashed in. Head smashed in, Buffalo Jump would be abandoned in the 19th century, and in 1968 it became a National Historic Site, and then a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1981. Today, the site has a large museum devoted not only to the site, but the Blackfoot culture, and the museum features levels that depict the ecology, mythology, lifestyle, and technology of the Blackfoot. Buried in the foothills of southern Alberta is a museum, seven levels and 2,500 square meters of museum, in fact, literally buried in the foothills. From ground level, all you can see is the entrance to the interpretive center of head-smashed-in Buffalo Jump. Though it's one of many jump sites used by the Indians to kill the buffalo, head-smashed-in is one of the oldest and best-preserved in the world. It was used as a jump site for over 5,700 years, and because of the rich archaeological deposits of buffalo bones and Indian artifacts found at the base of the jump, Head Smashed In was declared a World Heritage Site by the United Nations in 1981. That puts it right up there with the pyramids and Stonehenge. But Head Smashed In was in use as a buffalo jump about 500 years before the pyramids were even built. The interior of the interpretive center is a tribute to the site's archaeological importance and to the heritage of the Plains Indians. The exhibits and displays explain how these Indians coexisted with the buffalo and how they depended on them for their very survival. Let's go out here to the cliff. We're going to see where the buffalo actually went over. Linda Eagle Speaker is a Blackfoot Indian and an interpreter at Head Smashed In. She explains what buffalo jumps were all about. The view that we're looking at right here, we're looking into what we call the gathering basin where the buffalo would have gathered by the thousands. Our main job is to gather those buffalo together, drive them over the cliff. Young men dressed up in animal hides that imitate the sounds of animals like a wolf or a coyote will go out. And they will go out right into the herd. Instinctively, the herd will split to get away from the coyote or the wolf. The buffalo that are closest to the kill site, driveline system, they will be portioned off this way. The rest chase back in the valley. We don't need them. Then another boy will come out and he will go close to the herd as he possibly can. He is imitating the sound of a buffalo calf calling the buffalo towards the drivelines. They will surround that baby calf and protect it. Your young boy will crouch out and he'll sneak over the next little hill and he'll imitate that sound over and over and over again. Our driveline system is like a funnel. The smallest point at the edge of the cliff, the widest point out into the hills. And the driveline system is made up of piles of rocks. Maybe some dried buffalo chips, maybe some dried twigs, fresh boughs if they could find them. Behind each one of these rocks would be a human being, dressed in a buffalo robe, crouched down, once the buffalo have come by, your job is to come from behind the rock and wave your robe as best that you can so the buffalo won't come back. The buffalo are stampeding down through the driveline system. The buffalo see what we are looking at, continuous rolling plain, a place to escape. Because of their eyesight, they cannot see great distances away. They will continue running, looking for that escape. Down through the driveline system, they will come over the edge of the cliff, but it is too late. They cannot stop. They are front heavy. 
it will continue over the cliff and land down below. One of the biggest events in the early history of what would be Willow Creek was the arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police. In 1874, the famous March West took place when 275 new recruits came out to what would eventually be Alberta. That journey would lead to the founding of Fort McLeod on October 18, 1874. This fort, which measures 230 feet by 230 feet, was established to be the headquarters of the Northwest Mounted Police in 1876. With the establishment of the fort, guard rooms, stores, and a hospital would spring up as well. The original fort was established along a peninsula of the Old Man River, but would move to its present location of the current town in 1884. The town of Fort McLeod grew up around the fort, and when the railroad came through, settlers came in to begin to take advantage of the fertile land that was perfect for ranching. The history of the Northwest Mounted Police and their role in establishing the Canadian West from Fort McLeod is celebrated at the Museum of the Northwest Mounted Police. The museum includes eight buildings and over 9,000 artifacts from the early days of the force and the indigenous who occupied the area. The museum is a complete recreation of the original fort that was built in 1874. Opened in 1957, the museum would begin to host performances of the Northwest Mounted Police musical ride in 1973. If you would like to learn more about the history of Fort McLeod and its historic buildings, you can also get a self-guided walking tour brochure from the museum that will guide you through the community. Just prior to the arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police, a small property near Claire's home would be established, and it would become an important part in the early history of the area. The leavings at Willow Creek, which sits on 30 hectares, helped a lot of travelers who came through the area on their way to places like Fort Calgary prior to the arrival of the railroad. This property, established in the mid-1870s, provided a stopping house that was owned and operated by former buffalo hunter and whiskey trader Henry Kuntz. In 1882, J.R. Craig, the manager of the new Oxley Ranch that stretched for 200,000 acres, bought the stopping house and it became the ranch headquarters. By 1885, the buildings on the property were expanded as the ranch itself expanded. A post office would also be established there, and from 1886 to 1903, the Northwest Mounted Police would take advantage of the location by manning an outpost on the site and sending patrols out through the Porcupine Hills from the location. Once the Calgary and Edmonton Railway was built, the importance of the stopping house decreased. You can still visit this site, which became a provincial historic resource in 2006, and visit the house and stable that are among the oldest structures still in existence in southern Alberta, and one of the rare surviving bits of evidence of a Northwest Mounted Police post. By February of 1903, the community of Nanton was starting to spring up, where previously there was little more than cattle ranches. In the early part of that year, two small buildings were built, beginning with the H.M. Shaw store, followed by the Auditorium Hotel. Before long, a butcher shop and grocery store was established and the community began to grow. On June 22, 1903, Nanton became a village, getting its name from Sir Augustus Nanton, who directed firms that offered financing for farms and ranches throughout the West, helping to increase settlement through the future provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. The first overseer of the community would be J.M. Bender. By 1906, the community reached a population of between 400 and 500 people. One newspaper report from July of 1906 stated that 23 carloads of settlers' effects were unloaded at Nanton in one week, showing the increased number of settlers arriving in the community. By this point, the community was bringing in everything that it needed to be a modern community, including sidewalks, a fire brigade, a well to supply water to the community, and much more. Two elevators that had a capacity of 30,000 bushels were also erected over the previous two years in Nanton. Four churches had also been built, 
offering services to Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Anglican congregations. Stavey would also spring up around the same time as Nanton, becoming a village on October 16, 1903. Named for Alexander Stavely Hill, who was the managing director of the Oxley Ranching Company, the Canadian Pacific Railway gave life to the community and helped it grow to become a town on May 25, 1912. If you would like to learn more about the history of Stavely, you can visit the Stavely and District Museum, which has several exhibits including a general store, an old kitchen, a beauty parlor, school, as well as exhibits that highlight sporting and military history of the area. There's also a pioneer home that depicts family artifacts and a 1903 Altman Taylor threshing machine, which is on display outside the museum. One of the first recorded permanent settlers in the area of Clare's home was the man I mentioned before, Henry Kuntz, who came from Pennsylvania around 1870. At the time, he made his living as a bison hunter and the indigenous called him Lone Bull because he always hunted alone. Originally, the location was a spot for steam engines to stop in order to take on water along the Canadian Pacific Railway line along the McLeod Trail. The first trains arrived in the area in 1891 with the first station consisting of just a boxcar. It would not be until 1895 that a proper building was made. For ranchers, the railway stopping point was a perfect place to take their cattle for shipping elsewhere on the continent. Slowly, people began to arrive, with the first being William Moffat, who came from Pilot Mound, Manitoba, with 10 carloads of lumber. Not only was he the first official resident of Clare's home, but he would become the first mayor, and eventually the first MLA. On May 30, 1903, the village of Clare's home was established. During that year, the community had a lumber yard, post office, hardware store, and two hotels. Two years later, on August 31, 1905, it became a town. Interestingly, this was the last official act of the territorial government because the next day, Alberta was born. A big part of the sudden growth is thanks to a man named Ole Umdensen, who arrived in 1902 from Norway via North Dakota, bringing with him many early settlers of Norwegian heritage. For where the name comes from, as with many prairie communities, it comes from a prominent citizen. In this case, it was a woman named Claire although there is also the claim that it was named by John Niblock, the superintendent of the CPR between Medicine Hat and Calgary, who named it after his wife, who was back home in Medicine Hat, and she was named Claire. Many rural towns have wonderful museums, and Claire's home is no exception. Through the museum, you will be able to relive the history of the area, starting with the pre-contact Blackfoot culture, to the arrival of the railroad, to the ranchers who lived around Claire's home, all the way up to today. The museum itself was established in 1969 and is located in the CPR train station. Within the station, you will find the station's agent office, an exhibit dedicated to the hospitals of Claire's home, as well as one for Louise McKinney. More on her later. The exhibit hall, which is 8,000 square feet, features exhibits that highlight the indigenous history of the area, the Northwest Mounted Police, and the ranching history. There's also a blacksmith shop, telephone office, general store, a 1930s house, a land agent office, newspaper office, barber shop, a display honoring the military, churches, firefighters, and farmers of the area. Venturing outside the museum, there's a 1903 schoolhouse, a 1930s log cabin, a CPR caboose, and a CPR speeder car that is brought out for the summer season. The museum is open in the spring and summer, and admission is free, but donations are always accepted. One of the most significant events for Claire's home was the outbreak of the Second World War. Under the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, Base 15 Service Flying Training School was operated from June 9, 1941 to March 1945 in Claire's home. The first commanding officer of the base was Wing Commander Campbell, and by August 16, 1941, the first class of students had completed their training and were ready to receive their wings. At this ceremony, Lieutenant Governor J.E. Bolin 
would attend the special day, as would the mayor of Claire's home. Many people from town also came out for the big event. On October 15, 1941, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor came to the base for a visit and to complete an inspection. The Duke presented wings to the graduating class of Course 34, and he told pilots he appreciated their hard work. On February 23, 1942, the Women's Division of the Air Force arrived, and soon after, the No. 2 Flying Instructor School was established. The training school was not without accidents, though. The most notable happened when two pilots were flying a crane. The plane suddenly had engine failure and dove into the barracks block, crashing through the roof of the barracks and landing on top of the bunks. Thankfully, it only pinned down one man who was sleeping. The man who had been on the top bunk had gone to the washroom, likely saving his life. As for the man who was trapped under the plane, he escaped mostly unharmed. Another big visit came to the base in May of 1942 when Her Royal Highness Princess Alice and His Excellency the Earl of Athlone visited the station and inspected the Guard of Honor. The final event of the Flying Training School happened on March 29, 1945, when courses 121 and 122 received their wings, amounting to 122 airmen. Pilots would return to the base in 1941 when it was used to train pilots for the Korean War, operating as number 3 flight training school, while also training NATO pilots. The new facility had 1,100 personnel with 140 housing units on the base, as well as a school for 250 children. There was also a grocery store, two churches, a barber shop, and more, and the first class of the base would graduate, consisting of 30 pilots, on March 8, 1952. The first NATO personnel class graduated on October 22, 1952. The base would close on October 25, 1958, and the hangars were converted into industrial use, but a part of the base would eventually operate as the Claresholm Industrial Airport. By far, the most famous resident to come from the area, except for one who I will mention later, was Louise McKinney, who would make her mark as one of the famous five, among other major accomplishments. Originally born in Frankville, Ontario in 1868, she wanted to become a doctor, but the circumstances of the time prevented this, so she trained as a teacher. After teaching in Ontario and North Dakota, where she met her husband James, she would move to Claire's home with him in 1903, just as the community was starting to grow. A devout Christian with her husband, they would help build the village's Methodist church. She would also organize the ladies' aid within the church, and the home of McKinney and her husband would serve as a center for church life, and the couple were always helping needy families in the area. She would help to organize local temperance groups, and they would gain prominence through the next decade, and in 1917, she became the first woman elected to the Alberta legislature, and the first woman elected to a legislature in the entire British Empire. The man she defeated was William Moffat, the first resident, first mayor, and first MLA of the area. In her capacity as MLA, she would work to improve the legal status of widows and separated wives, getting the Dower Act bill drafted and passed in the legislature. Serving until 1921, she would continue to advocate for women's suffrage and temperance. It was her role in women's suffrage that she became involved in the person's case as one of the famous five. The case would lead to a constitutional ruling that established the right of women to be appointed to the Senate and legally recognized as persons under the British North America Act. The ruling also meant that women could no longer be denied rights based on a narrow interpretation of the law. Soon after the legendary ruling, Louise McKinney would organize a reading club in Claris Home with Florence Gray, and McKinney was elected as the first president of the Women's Reading Club. She would be made the Vice President of the Imperial Order of the Daughters of Alberta, and she became the first woman to have her portrait painted and hung in the legislative building in Edmonton. Two years after the successful resolution of the person's case, McKinney became ill while attending a convention in Toronto, 
and would pass away upon her return to Claire's home on July 10, 1931. Her husband died the next year. In 1939, she was recognized as a person of national historic significance. In Claire's home, a plaque honors her at the post office, and the person's case was recognized as a historic event in 1997. Statues of McKinney also exist in several places, including Calgary and on Parliament Hill itself. In 2009, McKinney, along with the other four of the women, were made honorary senators. Day when the problems of government the world over are essentially human problems, and our very homes and all that we hold most sacred are threatened by appalling dangers from without and by subversive forces from within, it is well that our national existence should be fortified by the participation in its affairs of those who are so exceptionally qualified to contribute to human well-being and to the preservation of the foundations of home and community life. It is with thoughts and convictions such as these that on behalf of the Canadian Federation of Business and Professional Women's Clubs, I now unveil the tablet which the Federation has erected in honor of the five women whose names it records. We now introduce one of the five women, an author, a well-known speaker, and the woman member of the Board of Governors of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, our own uh, Mrs. Nellie L. McConnell. <laughs> Madam President, Mr. Prime Minister, fellow Canadians, I desire to thank the Prime Minister and the President, too, for their kind words. And I thank the Prime Minister still more for the kindness he showed to our little petition when it was just a little scrap of paper going the rounds and not very welcome any place. I also wish to thank Newton Wesley Rowell for his kindness in taking our petition to the Privy Council. And I also wish to thank Lord Sankey for his glorious decision. <laughs> so clear-cut and unmistakable and unanswerable. I would like very much tonight, dear friends, if I could express the corporate mind, not only of the five of us, but of all the people who have advanced the cause of women by ways seen and unseen. The great unnumbered, the unremembered and unknown people who have done so much for us. The people whose names will never appear in the papers. People whose names we will never know. Because it has been a long task, it, was a, it has been an epic story, this rise of women. They had to begin from so far down. Women had first to convince the world that they had souls, and then that they had minds, and then it came on to this matter of political entity. And uh, the end is not yet. <laughs> we fear that there are still people who would sign a minority report. Now I do wish to pay my tribute of love and admiration to the other four women whose friendship I enjoyed and treasured for their loyalty, for their love, and for their steadfastness, for their wonderful companionship, Mrs. McKinney, Mrs. Muir Edwards, and Mrs. Parlby, whose message you will hear just in a moment. And particularly, I wish to give my tribute of praise to our undaunted and indomitable and incomparable leader, Emily F. Murphy. 
Another place in Willow Creek that helped the war effort was the RCAF Station McLeod, which operated from December 1940 to November 17, 1944. It was there that pilots from across the British Commonwealth would be trained to fly as part of that Commonwealth Air Training Program. It was also at this base that a very important Canadian's father would work. On November 7, 1943, one of the most celebrated musicians in history was born in Fort McLeod. Joni Mitchell, the daughter of Myrtle and William Anderson, spent her early life in the community where her father was a Royal Canadian Air Force flight lieutenant and an instructor at the RCAF station in Fort McLeod. Mitchell would go on to win nine Grammy Awards, be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and sell seven million albums. All Music Magazine would say of her, quote, When the dust settles, Joni Mitchell may stand as the most important and influential female recording artist of the late 20th century. End quote. In 1985, the Nanton Lancaster Society was formed with the goal of preserving the Avro Lancaster FM-159 that had been on display in Nanton since 1960. The plane was one of only 17 left in the world at the time, and it was used in the area during the Second World War during the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. In 1986, the Society began to display the aircraft as a museum. That year, the Lancaster had gone through a full restoration with all four engines operational. In 1991, a building was completed to house the plane, and the Bomber Command Museum of Canada was born. From there, things began to grow. Since 1991, the museum has expanded three times, in 1998, 2002, and 2007, and now includes several planes, a library, a restoration shop, and a gift shop. Currently, the museum houses 18 planes and five vehicles from the Second World War. The museum is currently restoring Mosquito RS-700 for display and working with Halifax 57 Rescue to rescue a Hanley Page Halifax HR-871 from off the coast of Sweden, which will be displayed at the museum once it's restored. This would make the Bomber Command Museum one of only four museums in the entire world to have such a plane on display. The museum also features a flight simulator, a Cessna crane simulator, airplane tours, and engine runs. I have visited this museum before, and it is truly one of the best museums out there if you have an interest in the Second World War and aviation. Well, for many of us, if you hear Lancaster Bomber, you automatically think of Nanton. For years, it's had the iconic Second World War aircraft parked along Highway 2. And the end of September marked the 60th anniversary of the plane being moved to its home there. Kevin Fleming reports. After the Second World War, Lancaster bombers weren't needed anymore, and at an old training base in Vulcan, they were cut up for scrap metal. Three Nanton men wanted to honour the thousands of Canadian airmen by showcasing a Lancaster in their town, so they paid the scrap fee of $513 to save it. It took two days to move the aircraft through farmers' fields, over the Little Bow River, and across railway tracks. Once it arrived, it still needed engines and propellers. But they were still scrapping Lancasters at Fort McLeod Airport. So uh, the same guys that brought the Lancaster over, they went down to Fort McLeod and they bought four engines and four propellers for a Lancaster for $45 each. After sitting outside for 30 years, weather and vandals took their toll on the aircraft. In 1985, Dan Fox helped form the Nanton Lancaster Society to raise money to build a hangar. We had a gravel floor and no roll-up doors. Uh, we had it all wide open, of course, while they were building it. So we rolled the lank in on the gravel, parked it, and now it was inside. 
It's taken countless volunteer hours to restore the aircraft and thousands of dollars of parts have been purchased. But the Lancaster is rare. In uh, dollar value, uh, I've heard varying amounts, but the way this Lank sits, being a taxiable aircraft, one of only four in the world, um, it probably is worth anywhere from, I would say, four to six million dollars. Now, the story of the Lancaster in the Bomber Command Museum doesn't end yet. That's because the museum has acquired a Halifax bomber that it will restore to sit side by side with the Lancaster. Now, it needs space to do that, so it's going to expand the museum by 25,000 square feet to house the two historic aircraft. Kevin Fleming, CTV News, Danton. Around 2001, as walls of the grain elevators in Alberta were coming down, Nanton made a choice to buck that trend. With the final elevator row of the community in danger of being demolished, the citizens of the community decided to preserve this part of its history instead and form the Save One campaign. For the next three years, with the danger of demolition ever present, the members of the Save One Historical Society gained full title to the land and the buildings. Not only did they save one of the elevators, they saved all three through countless volunteer hours and work. They then got to work repairing and restoring the elevators, including painting the Alberta Wheat Pool elevator back to its original green and the Pioneer elevator back to its original orange and yellow. Today, the history of Nanton's elevators and agricultural history of the community is celebrated in those elevators as part of the Canadian Grain Elevator Discovery Centre. The Pioneer Grain Elevator is also especially historic, having been built in 1929 by the Independent Grain Company Limited. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the MD of Willow Creek. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.